Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day! <laughs> it's hump day. Hump day! <laughs> this is Tom Donaldson with the Donaldson Files. Uh, and I am the chairman of America's PAC. I'm also the... Project Director for America's Majority Foundation, the author of eight books, none of which have yet become bestsellers, but they all should be. And we're going to have a pretty interesting show tonight. We're going to have an experiment. Uh, unfortunately, our Coco has been under the weather. She did make, as you well know, from last night's show, and I just talked to her, and she's still in pretty well pain. She had, like, a, uh, some stomach ailments, uh, high fever, whole ball of wax. So she's not going to be able to join us, but replacing her in the famous Coco Konski seat of liberalism will be Kyle Hester. Kyle, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I am uh, I am hanging in there in this uh, on this beautiful California day. So we'll we'll take that part. Yeah. So I have, what's the degree on California when you say beautiful? Define. Um, I, it's probably, I'd say about 88 right now. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's been pretty hot here no, lately, but, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll take it. So it's starting to look like fall, but basically here, like I said, right now I'm in Kansas city for business meetings. And, and so it's like 80 degrees, uh, and sunny. And it was like 70 and sunny when I left, uh, Cedar Rapids, but unfortunately over the weekend, it's going to get back to fall weather with 30 degrees at night and about 40 to 50 in a day. So, so actually, I guess that means fall is coming to the Midwest. Uh, well, that's what we're going to do here. That's just lovely. Yeah. Well, actually, it is. I mean, the trees have been really, I don't know, you know, we've had a lot of nice, colorful trees. So, uh, and yeah, so that's, that's the thing that I, I I miss about it. I used to live in Atlanta, and we had like amazing. Hey, this is Greg Bachelor. This is Kevin Bachelor. Are you listening? To- well, sorry about that. Go ahead. No, no problem. I was, I was just saying that, like that. I definitely miss the the fall tree color change um, from Atlanta. There's not a whole lot of tree color change here in California. Yeah, I know is that. Yeah, well, like I say you do see it here in the Midwest. It's Really been kind of pretty and beautiful. So I tell you what we're gonna we're gonna try an experiment tonight. Uh, All right. So we're and so the experiment, folks. What we're gonna end up trying to do is I'm gonna what are we gonna do? We're gonna point out. I'm gonna make a few statements dealing with COVID, dealing with some of the issues, dealing with the elections, and and basically uh, Kyle is gonna take notes from what I say. And then he'll have his counterpoints, and then we're going to move on to the next point. So you get both sides tonight. And as the nice guy that I am, the nice guy that I am, I'm basically 
uh, going to let my guests have the last word because I'm just a super nice guy. And, and what can well, I say? You know what? I, I'll vouch for that. You are a nice guy, and you don't have to do that because, you know, I mean, you can do we – can, like, we can trade off on last words. Yeah. Well, like I said, well, like I said, we'll see how this thing works because, uh, like I said, I want to kind of give, you know, both sides of the issue so people can see here, okay, here's the issue. They can decide for themselves, you know, of my brilliance or whether or not. <laughs> so, all right. And then, uh, then at the end of the show, we're also going to kind of talk about what you're doing and everything else. So we give you a chance to talk about your YouTube channels. Uh, which I know you've been promoting quite a bit in your Twitter site. So, all right, here's the thing. I, I'm going to start off with issue number one. Uh, and, and it comes out, okay, and, if, and basically issue number one comes down to this. Okay, one of the leading officials of the WHO basically stated what I've been stating now for several months. It's time to end the lockdown and time to open up the economies. And his rationale is the same rationale that I've been using. Namely, okay, in the case of the world, you've already gotten by close to about a third of a billion people are now put on this, the edge of starvation with the economic lockdown throughout the world, in particular Europe, because a lot of these third world countries can't trade. You know, they're not able to trade their goods, their services to much of the uh, developed nations, and much of the developed nations themselves have seen including here in the United States, you know, you know there's a lot of economic hardships. And, and, and basically, I'll, I'm going to make four points, and, I, and we'll get more into those numbers a little bit later. But the, the points I would make in, would be is this. Have we actually saved lives? Or are we losing more lives with the lockdown than, let's say, fighting you know, than with the virus, than, due to the virus? I will make the argument, and we'll you know, pursue this a little more, that we will probably end up killing more people in the long run with the lockdown. Number two, within the, the various nations and the developed nations, if inequality is the big issue, we have increased inequality even worse because many of the businesses that have gone down the toilet or, or closed are mainstream businesses, what do you call it, business on Main Street, the small business owners, whether the urban centers or whether they're in rural America or suburban America. And the big winners are the major corporations who have been able to weather the storm and end up increasing the market share. And I think, you know, and finally, the number of unemployment and the, the cost it has, because if you look at the states with the biggest economic restrictions are the ones with the biggest economic hardship for their, you know, for their people. So with the WHO officials, you know, again, this is an official, not necessarily WHO position, but the case he's making is the case I've been making all along. All right. Kyle, go ahead. All right. Well, uh, see, see, this is uh, the, the challenge becomes what you can believe from the officials now, since they're all like Trump appointees and they're no longer really um, just representing that particular um, 
cabinet position that they're in. It's like you're either like, you know, you either back Trump or you're fired. So I, I don't know that you can really trust what's coming out of um, Trump appointees, what, what, what they're saying now, you know. So, I mean, I, I do understand that, uh, that there are issues with um, openings. And, um, and I, th- I think that basically as, if, if everybody just kind of like, you know, wore masks and social distances, and, and I think that those things work. So can you apply that to, uh, to all businesses? I, I think that you can have – I think that there's a way to open businesses and have social distancing and people wearing masks and stuff like that so that there's – we can work together on finding solutions, you know, for that. Yeah. Here's the thing. Like, again, I'm going to go, you know, kind of part two here. Uh, then, you know, we'll get to a break and then you'll go ahead and respond. Here's the thing. First one, number one. Scott Adler is one of his, you know, I'm going to put it this way. People like Tony Fauci have been proven to be wrong on the two biggest issues. The impact of the lockdown, which he and others recommended, and they overestimated the lethality of this virus, which we'll go into later. And those officials like Scott Atlas have proven to be correct, and they've asked all the right questions. Number two, when we look at the lockdown numbers, you know, I'm going to go beyond the administration because basically, a, for example, you know, we've done studies on this in the foundation. Others have done similar studies. And what we have found very clearly, when you look at lockdown versus non-lockdown states, uh, and again, our numbers show this, another's numbers have show this, is that, number one, the number of cases are similar between the states. So whether you lock down or, or let's say have a less restrictive, you did not have any difference in cases, and you actually had less deaths in the non-lockdown states. You also delayed the, you know, you also delayed the virus from, in other words, herd, I'm going to use the word herd immunity, but herd immunity is basically what happens in a natural state of a virus, namely X number of people get it, it pretty much dissipates for that particular season. And by delaying it, we delayed the entire process there. We didn't exactly. And so that's the other aspect that comes into play. And when you look at the economic side as well, uh, you will look at, like, for example, at bankruptcy. You know, we found there were more bankruptcy in the lockdown states versus non-lockdown states. So the economic hardship to go along with the fact that you didn't save lives per se is the issue you know, to me. And the data would back up the fact that those individuals within the administration who called for the easing of economic restriction will prove to be more correct than those who didn't. And, and those who basically said, what about the lethality, who, un, who understood the lethality may not have been as great as we originally feared, feared, which is the reason why we had the lockdown, were proven to be correct versus those who did not. Now, this is Tom Donaldson here on the Donaldson Files with my good friend Kyle Hester. We'll be right back here on the Bachelor News Radio Network with uh, Kyle's own observations. If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. 
And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. And also, don't forget the Dr. Larry Show with Dr. Larry Federer, who takes a look at politics from a conservative perspective, the Trump era. Listen to him live every Wednesday, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, blocktalkradio.com, slash la-bachelor, and the podcast of the show every day, 2 a.m. and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Also, just don't forget on our show, you can listen to our show on Bachelor. The Bachelor News Pro, 3 a.m., 10 a.m., every day, and midnight and 7 a.m. Pacific time. And if you want to comment on today's show uh, to kind of give you a view, or if you just want to simply call in and just simply say, Tom, you're brilliant, keep it up. Yeah, we'll even let you. We'll even let you do that as well. And so, um, and welcome once again on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And okay, Kyle, your turn. Yeah, yeah. Which, which, well, I'll just respond respond to the um, to the brilliance part. And I think that I I concur that people should definitely always call in just to tell you know how brilliant you are and the guests that you have on and the co-host just because it just makes everyone feel good. So um, I, I, I fully, I fully, I'm on board. Let's do it. Caller number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't have a caller just yet, but uh, all right. So you, you have any extra comments or on that? Or should um, we go you on know, to the next I, I think it would, yeah, I think that we're just kind of like this. We're just watching it play out here i mean we're kind of going into the next wave of it all and um, i think that the winter could be pretty ugly so um i I think you know we have other countries in the world that are shutting down again and um so it's not just america you know or a state by state kind of thing so the the whole planet's um you know dealing with this so yeah i just i hope it's not too bad this winter all right okay now I'm going to throw this out because this is the hand grenade I want to put in because, you know, because the entire premise is this. And again, I'm going to go back to the uh, point because sometimes, you know, I think we've had a 50 state experiment on this virus. And, and the point yeah, I'm going to make Yeah, I'll agree this, with that. Yeah. And here's the thing. You know, if you look at the data and you can say to yourself, okay, you know, are you better off in a state with a Republican governor who's had, on the average, and I know it's on the average, because we, there are Republican governors who did not, who were more restrictive, and there were Democratic governors who were a little bit less restrictive in how they approach things, and that there were Democratic governors who you know, did a fairly decent job, or the numbers, and there were Republican governors who did absolutely horrid. But you look at the average. The I mean, here's the thing that comes into play because the the question comes into play is this: Who do you trust to deal not just with the virus, but you have the flu season coming up and going forward, not only in basically 
recovering from the, you know, the economy recovering, which we'll give more and more details later, but also the virus. And here's the question I go back. 124,000 people have died in states with Democratic governments. On a per capita basis, it comes out to about 600 per million. On the average, you had 88,000 people die in Republican states, but an average of about 470 per million. If you are black or Hispanic, the numbers, again, which you would say, okay, which, you know, that A, you're more likely to die in a state from COVID with a Democratic versus Republican state. The other aspect is the economic side of the equation. The unemployment numbers for Republican governors is about six. The, un- the, the average unemployment numbers for Democratic states is 8.5, a little bit, little over 8.5. But the you know, but when you look at the bigger states, and I'm talking about Florida, Texas, Georgia, um, and Ohio, for example, the average unemployment is approximately seven percent, and the number and the and basically there's five hundred about five hundred per million deaths versus about eight hundred million per deaths into some of the bigger states like Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York. Uh, in California, but the unemployment numbers come out to 12% of those states. The entire premise to me is, is, is this, it comes down to this. Those states that made the decision, very similar to what Sweden did, and I, I use those similar because every state had their form of restrictions in some form of capacity. It was not an unleashed, lazy, fair type of attitude, but you had each states that had easier Less restrictions versus the heavier restrictions. The less restrictive states did not show any increase in deaths. On the average, they had less deaths, and they had better economic performance. And the question comes into play is, you know, which methodology worked the best? I think that there's your 50-state experiment. Is data consistent? And to me, that's a very important consideration of which political party you're going to trust going into 2021. Okay, your comments. Well, I think, I think there's a lot to unpack there. And I I think that also it's um, doing Democrat states versus Republican states. I will, although I I understand what you're saying, but um, you have basically some of the most populous states are on the coast, which would be democratic states. And also you have the, population versus the city centers and like that kind of thing. So it's, it's not exactly apples and apples, you know, with it, but I mean, basically if you like California, you know, if you, if you look at like the, the deaths per million, um, it's like 21,800 and then Texas and Florida um, both lead that 29,000 and 34,000. So it's like, so California, you know, shuts down. Those two states don't. More people die. So, and that those are just numbers if we're just going to do the numbers thing, you know. But I think that there's a lot more than that just to to look at. It's like, you know, New York, um, like Manhattan, like the huge city centers. It's like 
that's where you have the problems. You know, it's lots of people all in one area. You know, it's hard to socially distance and, and that kind of thing, which is why, you know, a lot of the Republican states have more land, less big cities, so people are more spread out. So it's just naturally those numbers are like whatever the politics are. Naturally, the disease is going to reflect those numbers because of the population spread versus city centers and that kind of thing. Hey, I'm, I'm going um, to respond to that. I'll let you have a, the last word on this one. Because first of all, no, when we did our lockdown study, we did a, we did a comparison red versus blue. We cut and we did put those variables in place where we said, basically, let's try to do an apple apple. And the, and the other S and so and again, we found similar numbers when I, you know, when we looked at that, the other aspect and that's the reason why I brought those, you know, those, you know, if you look at the top eight populist states, four of which are Republican, four of which are Democrat, you're absolutely correct that, let's say, California is, of those eight states has the lowest, but New York has the highest. And I, and the question mm-hmm. has the highest. And certainly in the case of California, you've got LA, the big major yeah. metropolitan area. And so it's not. And the same thing when you look at, let's say, Texas, Florida, uh, Ohio, you have major metropolitan centers. You, you, you look at Georgia, you have Atlanta. You look at, let's say, Illinois, you have Chicago. You look at uh, Pennsylvania, you have Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. And so you know, right. when I looked at those eight states, you still come up with this, you know, the similar aspect. Well, the, otherwise, you can say California did the best in death, but they have double digits unemployment. Okay, Florida has a higher death per million, but their unemployment is about two-thirds. Texas is about two-thirds. Georgia is one-half. And in the case of New York, you had the worst of both worlds, uh, high unemployment and high death total. And part of that was mm-hmm. self-induced with their nursing home policy, which, by the way, Newsom, your governor, didn't follow. And so when you look at the numbers, again, I would say, on the average, the red states have the advantage. I'm going to let you have the last word on this, and then we'll go to the next subject here. Right on. I think that, um, you know, I, I think that we – I have already made the points, I think, about it not being really apples to apples on that kind of thing because um, the, you know, COVID doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't care if you're Republican or Democrat. So – I think that that's really what it comes down to. It's just like how do how do we fight this whole situation? And you know, what, what regardless, I mean, because you know, if it rains more, it's like Louisiana. You know, right now um, they're flat. Their curve is flat. You know, is it because it rains more there? Is it because there's more water? You know, I mean, I, I don't know what the answers are, but it's like, is is the airflow different? There's so many variables that I think that it's like we're all kind of learning as we go here, and um. You know, I, I, hopefully people are doing the best they can, you know, but to, to kind of throw your hands up and go, oh, whatever, you know, everyone's going to get it. So we're just going to open everything up and, and not really pay attention or give any rules, I think, is is completely irresponsible, which is why you're seeing the numbers that you're seeing in Florida, you know, go up. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay, here's the other point. Okay, here's the other point. That, now I'm going to throw it to this particular point, and it comes down this uh, and we'll have to break it then uh, Kyle will come up with his response afterwards 
Here's my problem that I have. Again, I'll go back to the lethality because this is where I think Tony Fauci screwed up badly. All right, he kept telling Congress it's going to be ten times worse than the flu. It's going to be twenty times worse than the flu. He basically, in the models at the beginning, we were looking at two million. We were looking at the Spanish flu, essentially what the experts were claiming, which would have been two million deaths uh, across the board. We. Mm-hmm. And my own view is that I think we've you know, you, that we've actually overestimated the number of COVID deaths, whereas let's, because of the following problems, and that is number one, if you know, nineteen for every one person who we cannot find a corresponding underlying disease state, nineteen you could find about nine, you could find three to four, and the question has always been as Debbie Deborah Books when she was you know, asked about this is are we Judging people based on do they are they living are they dying you know do they just are they with COVID or are they dying because of COVID and that's not an easy thing to do in that state when you have that kind of a situation. My own view is and again this is a debate among scientists and this is there's a, a debate among scientists going along with those lines have. To what extent have we overestimated? Regardless, we still would have over 100 to 100, in my view, 150,000 to about 180,000 deaths. But here's the question that comes into play here, and this is a point I'm going to leave the audience, and I'll leave with you on the other side of this particular break. That is, we have an infectious fatality rate. We were looking at 2 to 5%. It's a 0.2 to 0.3. The WHO numbers may be even lower. The most recent numbers may be even lower if their if their estimates of worldwide infections are accurate. In 1957, 1968, we had two flu pandemics that would have been the equivalent on a per capita basis of the death totals we're looking at today. We didn't. And so the question that I I've always asked, and I will continue to ask, is do we continue to lock down an economy or a virus in which 998 and 99.7% of the average person is going to survive, which is maybe a point, a one out of a thousand or two out of a thousand more chances of somebody dying than, let's say, the, the flus we've had for the past decade? That will be the question I'll have you answer when we get back here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Yeah, Doug, get your flu shot, folks. Get your flu shots. I've gotten my flu shot. I don't know, Kyle, have you gotten your flu shot yet? I have not gotten my flu shot. And, um, yeah, I've, I actually I haven't gotten a flu shot. I think I'm one of the only people in my family. I haven't gotten a flu shot in, in years. And, um so yeah, I, I'm not the flu shot guy. 
Well, I'm going to recommend to you the same I recommend to everybody else. You get the flu shot. It also gets your children, in fact, you know, with the flu shot as well, because I'm going to tell you this much. Uh, children, if the CDC numbers are correct, if your school child is more likely to die from the flu than from COVID, so they need the flu shot even more than you do. Just remember that, parents. Just remember that. But also remember, parents, that let's say COVID, it will strike the elderly a lot harder than, let's say, than the flu. So there's that. So understand what this. I'm not trying to insinuate that the flu is more dangerous than COVID. I'm just simply making the point that with selected group, age group, it does matter. So get your flu shot. And and Kyle, you get your flu shot as well. All right. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that, and I as well. I'm not saying for people to not get it. No, do your thing, get it. So uh, yeah. I mean, my sister gets hers every year, so it's just something that I've never, um, never gotten, never done. So, but uh, yeah, so maybe I'm lucky. Um, but yeah, go f- yeah. do it. Keep yourself yeah. safe. But, yeah. But before we get to your response, I, I guess I can tell you when I, the first time when I made it a religious for me, uh, an experience for me to get the flu shot every year, because I had a flu like when I was 29 years old. I literally, I was knocked out for six weeks. I mean, it was oh, the man. worst I've ever. I mean, this was like I had, I had an ear infection so bad that they had to they had to literally put steroids, put me on steroids, just to you know bust it up. Uh, wow. I had a doctor basically. I mean, my doctor said, okay. I mean, he gave me. He got to a point where he, I'm gonna check you for something. I mean, there must be something there. And he found out afterwards. Go through all these tests. He says, oh, what? You got a really bad virus. Go home to rest, and eventually it goes away, which you did. But that was the worst I ever felt in my life. But, okay, now I'll go back to the. Re- okay, now we'll get back uh, to what we, you know, I was talking about. Okay, as I say, we overestimated the fatality rate of the virus. It's similar to the '57 or '68 pandemic, which, by the way, killed close to the equivalent today of 200,000 people. So it wasn't. So people have to understand when I say 5768 pandemic, you know, these are two worst, the two worst pandemics since the Spanish flu of, of mm-hmm. 1918, 19, And my question has always been, you know, I would think when we've been better off living with the virus as a, with a, I, with an infectious vitality rate that was 0.2 to 0.3, uh, which is what we're looking at, two and a thousand, three and a thousand versus maybe one of a thousand for the last decade. And I said, and this has always been my point, we, you know, we basically overestimated it, overshot it. And now the question is, do we, could, do, do we learn to live with the virus? And, you know, after the conversation we already had a lockdown, your response would be, uh, yeah, we definitely have to learn how to live with it. So, and the choice is, what do we do while we're living with it? You know, I mean, uh, I, I'll just reflect it to the rest of the world. The rest of the world is making these these decisions as well. You know, it's like you have like other countries are, are doing the same kind of mitigations that we are doing here, and I think that that America is the only place where this is even a conversation about, you know, do we just open it all back up and let, let the chips fall where they may? I mean, I think that that is not even a conversation in any other place in the world. And I personally love Americans and love my country, and I don't want people to die, you know, for 
callous irresponsibility, you know, of just letting the chips fall where they may. All right. So, okay. Now we're going to go into uh, the, the political race. And what I'm going to do here, I'm going to take you know, certain subjects. And we'll make the case for the Trump side equation. I'll let you make the case for the Biden side. And we're going to do it issue by issue. And I'm going to start off with foreign policy. Because nobody can really talk about foreign policy. But, you know. And, and I'm going to make the – because here's one of the things I'll say. What people don't understand, there's been some good successes both in economics and foreign policy uh, under the Trump administration that have gone on notice. And, let me, and I'll start with the foreign policy side very quickly because I'm going to put it this way. At the beginning of the 2017, what did we have? In the 2009, the Obama-Biden administration inherited the following. Yemen, stable. 2017, we inherited a civil war between Iran, proxies, and the Saudis in Yemen. Libya, in 2009, had basically surrendered their chemical weapons and basically said, no, Moss, we're out of the the, uh, terrorist business. All right, 2017, Gaddafi is killed, and we end up with a terrorist you know, playland where basically it's totally, the best way to say, chaos and anarchy in Libya. There is no real government, and even to this day, uh, you had a civil war in Syria that probably killed as many, if not more, people than the Iraq war did. And you had Iran on the march in Syria, Lebanon, and the Gaza Strip. The Ukraine basically in 2009, had control over the entire country, including Crimea, the the Ukraine that got inherited basically is still half is controlled by the proxies of Putin, and you also had the Crimea. In fact, if anything, Trump has proven to be tougher on Putin than the previous administration. And we can also say the fact you know, the confrontation, which, you know, basically Trump has changed our policy in forward with China, recognizing, in fact, they are now the biggest threat. And the last thing I would say, if you look at the most recent PACE initiatives, you know, the alliance between the Sunni Arabs and Israel, this was done by negotiations. And what you have is two things, peace within the Arab world, good portion of the Arab world with Israel, and you also have basically an anti-Iranian alliance with the Sunni Arabs and the Israelis against the against the Iranians. And the Iranians right now, their economy is back in the crapper due to the sanctions. In other words, there's been a lot of progress made on the foreign policy side that Trump and his team doesn't get credit for. Okay. Your response. Well, um, I am definitely not a Middle East expert, um, and I think that you touched on a lot of that stuff. Um, But I would say that on the other side of it, I think that a tremendous amount of damage has been done to our allies um, in this Trump administration, that uh, like actually the people who helped to found our country, 
and you know England, Spanish, Spain, France. You know, it's like our World War Two allies that uh, that are now we're kind of like uh, not really on the in with. Like we don't even share information with them anymore. You know, and, and so I think there's a lot of questions about like why is that? You know, and what is what is Trump really doing? Why are we cozying up to Saudi? You know, when, when like these are people that have done really, really bad things, you know. And um, so I, I have questions about, like, who are our allies and why are we why are we like uh, cozy enough to Putin? You know, why hasn't Trump said anything about the fact that Putin put bounties on our American soldiers? Not a word, not a word from this guy. So I, I don't really know, you know, why the focus on on the Middle East and what those things mean with those warring factions, you know, between each other, and um and and we're supposedly not supposed to be involved in it. So yeah, so I, I but like I said, I'm not an expert on those things. So but I have my questions on why we are no longer as in with our the the people that helped to build and create America. And so I have a big problem with that. I, I, I'm going to respond to that, then I'm going to let you get the last word on that. Uh, here's my problem. First of all, number one, the Putin bounty has never been proven to begin with. Number two, let's not forget who sold the offensive weapon to the Ukrainians to allow them to defend themselves against Russia. That was the, the Trump administration. That was the Trump yeah, administration. Yeah, with caveat so that they could not use those weapons against Russia. Well, they used them against the uh, Russian proxy. That's what they did. I mean, they were able to defend themselves better against the Russian proxies that basically, you know, that kind of took over the eastern half of the Ukraine. So, yeah, I mean, it did. You know, they did do that. So, I mean, that's not necessarily. So, I mean, do we code? And in the case of the Saudi Arabia, I know exactly what you're saying. You say, no, the Saudis are not great people. But but in the past, we looked through the Cold War, you even looked through World War II, you know, Sometimes you make alliances with people that may not be all that savory to defeat a greater enemy. Uh, certainly in World War II, we sided with the Soviet Empire to go up against Nazism. It wasn't because Joseph Stalin was a wonderful humanitarian. It's because you know, we needed his help to defeat Nazism. Well, it's in the same way with the Saudis. You know, or which is the greater threat? To me, Iran is the greater threat in the Middle East and the greater threat to us than, let's say, the Saudis. Uh, and that's, you know, it's a, a question you ask, but sometimes it's that unsavory side of the equation. I'll let you finish up, and then we're going to go on to the next break. Right, yeah. No, I mean, I, I hear your points. Um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, that those those issues, you know, with, with Saudi Arabia are, are something, I mean, you know, do, how, how does Saudi Arabia feel about Israel, you know, and where do we, where do we stand with that, you know, as America? And so I think that there are some definite questions, you know, on why we're doing what we're doing, you know, or why Trump is doing what he is doing, you know? Um, so, and I, frankly, I mean, you know, I would, I would rather us be on good footing with uh, with all of the European nations that that we were on good footings with before until before Trump, and so it's like why are you know why is are we like now trying to make be all friendly with murderers? 
All right, this is Tom Dawson, Coach, uh, with uh, Kyle Hester, who's seating in the uh, famous Coco Conte seat of liberalism. Uh, this is the Donaldson Files in the Bachelor News Radio Network. We will be right back after we listen to some, some more uh, advertising for great programs on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Tune in to You and the Law with Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey. The show focuses on law enforcement and their relationship with the black community while letting you know your legal rights as a citizen when confronted by the police. Listen live every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Sunday at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Yeah, welcome back to the Donaldson Files. This is uh, Tom Donaldson. Coco uh, uh, Konski is out, but sitting in in the famous liberal Coco Konski seat is Kyle Hester. And don't forget Locker Talk with Barry Bonds. Barry is where you can hear about the NFL stars of tomorrow. Today, listen to Barry every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time at blocktalkradio.com slash la-bachelor. And the podcast every day from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with back-to-back episodes at bachelornewsairtime.pro. Interested in having your own show or advertising? Email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed. And also, if you want to call in, we got about uh, 19 minutes left. Uh, you call in at 646-929-0130. 646-929-0130. Or you can... Uh, Twitter me at the Donaldson Files. So if you got a question or comment, you can go at the Donaldson Files on Twitter right now and 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 get your comments in. So and we are on 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. every day on the BachelorNews.airtime.pro. And if you're on the Pacific time, uh, you, it's midnight to 7 a.m. All right. Now we'll go back to, okay, now we're going to continue. What we're going to do, we're going to finish up with a couple of subjects, and then we're going to move on to um, YouTube. Uh, uh, Hester's going to talk about the, I mean, Kyle's going to talk about his uh, YouTube channels, and we're going to maybe, well, we might even talk about a little football or a little sports. They kind of lighten up the load before we kind of get ourselves out of here. All right. Here's, now, like I'm going football. to go in the area. You know, Bobby? I said, I like football. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, what? Your dad played professional football, right? Yeah, he did. He played. Uh, he played for the Saints in the seventies. Yeah, Ray uh, did he play with Archie Man? Yeah, he did. Now, was he play with yeah, Archie? He played with yeah, Archie. Played with Archie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. All right. Here's a okay. The last subject here is going to be ec- the economy. All right. And the question comes into play is okay. Uh, there'll be two parts. Of, Here's the question. Here's the point I'm going to make is, first of all, number one, through February of 2020, we pretty much were at the lowest unemployment we've had in pretty much a generation. And if you look at the different groups, there are three things that one could say about the February 2020 economy. And that is, number one, the unemployment rates were down. Number two, at the bottom, those people moving up the economic ladder actually were seeing their incomes go up faster than, let's say, the previous administration. And, and finally, number three, if you look, you know, black and Hispanics saw some of the bigger gains. 
they had some of the lowest unemployment rates and the labor participation rates. They were the only two groups that actually had a labor participation rate uh, higher, let's say, in 2020 than, let's say, in 2009. So the progress will be made. Now the question comes into play with the lockdown. Everybody knew the lockdown was going to have some economic uh, uh, economic issues. But here's the thing. Since May, we have averaged 2 million jobs being created. So basically we've recovered about 60% of those jobs that, let's say, we lost in the original lockdown of March and April. So we are, we're down to a 7.9% unemployment. The, the Federal Reserve, the Atlanta Federal Reserve, is estimated that the third quarter growth may in fact be an annual rate of about 32%, almost basically you know, catching up to the losses that we had in the second quarter. To be able to make a V-shaped curve recovery of that nature has actually been pretty good considering the fact that many states have already stated the lock you know, are still in an economic restriction. And I'll go back to my original point I made earlier. And that is the average unemployment rate for the Republicans states on the average is about 6.5%. The average for Democrats is considerably higher. If we were at 6.5% today or matching what the Republicans have done with their unemployment numbers, we'd be looking at, let's say, un- you know, let's say unemployment claims about one half what they are right now the number of people needing assistance will be far less and the number of people working be far greater. So the question to me is which political party is going to do a better job of growing us out of this mess. And when you're looking at an average of 2 million jobs over the past five months being created. And I think it's, I find it fascinating when people we only had 660,000 jobs created in the month of September. Now, realizing that's like triple what we have seen over the average from 2000, from the Obama and Trump years, three times. So when your worst year is three times what you have and you're averaging about 2 million, that means, in fact, the economy is starting to pick up. It's starting to recover quicker and quickly. And my point would be we will be better off with a Trump economic plan than a Biden economic plan. Your response. Well, I I mean, we know that we know that Trump is all about, you know, big corporations and, and keeping those things going and prop and, you know, making sure the stock market is doing well. So, so people that have money will continue to to do well and have money um, with with this particular style. You know, um, I think that what we've lost a lot of is is we've lost a lot of the small businesses because of the COVID situation. So and those are those are the things that are going to be gone forever. And then what do you do? See, here's the thing: if if Trump had just if he had handled the COVID thing better and just focused on, on the economy, I think that he wouldn't be doing as poorly as he is in the polls. And he, he, he could have had a better chance 
you know, you can debate me on that, but he could have a better chance of being reelected than I think he has now. Um, you know, just because of his poor response to COVID and, um, you know, and that, and, and those numbers, the 600,000, I mean, we can both play with numbers, you know, and basically, yeah. so those are some of the jobs coming back, not necessarily being created, you know, so, but, uh, yeah. And, and he, he inherited a robust economy from back when we really did have a recession when Obama got into office and that he took us out of that. So if Trump had just like kept it going and didn't mess around with the, you know, the tariffs and all that kind of stuff that killed the farmers. And, you know, I think that uh, he could be talking about a lot of good stuff, but I think he gets in his own way. And so here we are. Well, okay. I'm going I'm to like say you, you make two points. I want to kind of, uh, then I'll let you finish up and we'll move. Is this okay? You make the point of small businesses. As I stated earlier, the lockdown has done as much damage to that, and the economic restrictions I agree. that I are agree. been. In, but the economic, yeah, but the economic restriction. Most of those economic restrictions are being done in states like in New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Minnesota. Those are democratic states. You look at the states like okay, South Dakota, even in Florida. You look at you know Texas. Their unemployment numbers are basically four to six percent. So they're doing exactly what you say they should be doing, creating those jobs and getting those jobs back and helping some of those small businesses get back. Where the biggest loss have come is come in those major states that I've just talked about mostly with the blue model. And and when you say robust economy, uh, well, I guess the question would be is this. You know, the Obama administration had the slowest recovery on record in the post-World War II era. He had a recovery, but was you know, but it wasn't as robust as people like to remember it. And I would no, it was it was a it was a slow grind to get it to yeah. come back after Bush yeah. killed it. No, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess I'll tell you. I'll let you. I'll let you finish. Okay, I'm gonna give you one last chance and then we're going to move on to the last 10 minutes of YouTube and, and, and a few other things. So do you have any extra words? Uh, no, I, I I think we're good. Let's let's move on. All right, let's move on. Okay. I, I want to get, like I say, I hope everybody enjoys this show. This was, like I say, something we it's kind of an experiment we did. I thought it worked out pretty well. I don't know, but Kyle, I think you you did a good job representing your side and I did a good job representing my side. People can decide for themselves. All right. First of all, kind of talk about your YouTube channel. What's going on with that? Right on. Well, I tell you what, okay. Um, yeah, I'm definitely doing – go check it out. Kyle Hester, look up Kyle Hester on YouTube, and uh, and please subscribe to the channel. I'm going to be doing lots of fun stuff on that, which I already have been. I do live streams and talk about the movies that I've done and get some behind-the-scenes on film stuff. And then you have some, you know, ridiculousness. If you like archery and bow and arrows, I do lots of like tests on making bows and stuff like that, which I'm getting into. But um, but the the big news here is that um, I am moving to Louisiana, so um, I'm like swimming in U-Haul boxes right now. So I have not made a video in um, in a little bit. Oh, okay. So what do you? So what got you going to uh, Louisiana? Is it, uh, uh, that's where I'm. That's where I'm from. Um, 
So, yeah, I was born in New Orleans. Um, so basically, I'm just kind of moving back in that direction, and I will continue to make movies in um, in Hollywood South. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm looking forward to to continuing the independent film thing. Um, you know, but to surrounded by water, and I can go fishing and and do the things that I used to do as a kid. So I've been fishing in a long time, and I really miss it. So I'm looking forward to doing that again. Yeah, let me ask you a quick question because I. Like I said, I have a good friend of mine in the film business who was in the film business for years. And I know, like, uh-huh. the, the film production that he used to associate with, they had a – they actually had a studio in in the in Louisiana. And, you know, and he kind of made the point that, you know, it's it's actually a pretty good place to make films. It's a little bit less expensive than uh, Hollywood. Uh, so is that one reason, or is it just simply the family thing took precedence, or was that in the back of your mind as well? Um, you know what? I think that part of it is, I mean, it's going to be the big grand adventure with film and I'm totally looking forward to it, but it, it's more of like, what do you want out of life? What do you want to, you know, how do you want to spend your time on the planet? And, and, um, so I would much, I would rather have a lake nearby and, and a, and a river and get a boat and, and be able to enjoy life on, on those terms as well as making movies. So, so that's really what it's about. No, you, uh, okay, no. Would you be going back to New Orleans? Is that where you were? Um, we're actually going to be on the North Shore, which is uh, Mandeville. So, like, right across the uh, Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans. Okay. I'm going to say, I love New Orleans. I mean, I mean that's, one of, I mean, you know, that's a, one of the most interesting, fun cities to visit. Yeah, you know, I, I could tell you about two, three years ago. You know, my, you know, you know, my, my family. You know, we all went together. My two, uh, my two daughters, my, and uh, my wife. We, it was like, in fact, I think it was over St. Patrick's Day. We did a St. Patrick's Day deal. And oh it was, wow, I that's mean, awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna say it was awesome. But here's the thing. I mean, my because we did like an ARB, whatever you call those things. Uh, you know, my daughter got us an ARB, so we had a very nice condo that was very close to downtown, to New Orleans, to the uh, – uh, what is that called? The Superdome? Uh, French Quarter? No, no, no. French Quarter, yeah. We were close to the French Quarter. And and I got to say, it, it was uh, – it, it, so, we, you know, we got – you know, my, our kids got in first. We got in second. And my kids got these big – Big like would look like uh, you know what you get at Seven Eleven you know the those big fancy yeah. drinks oh they got hurricanes what oh, yeah that was the thing they went to a dry themselves you know a hurricane <laughs> that Which is yeah that is awesome I tell you what New Orleans has its own rules they sure do you can yeah. walk around you can get to go cups and walk around the quarter you'd like to go you yeah. know alcohol. No, I mean exactly. That's exactly what I remember. I mean, that, like I said, I've been there in business. I mean, I used to go. There have been a few times I was in the pharmaceutical business. We go down there for businesses, and uh, but I just felt like I mean, when I went, you know, that. But the last time we went there, it was like it was great. I mean, like I said, they're sitting there. You know, they basically you know you know picked the rent a car, they picked it up, they you know they go through this drive-through where you get those big. You know, you know, big ass hurt, you know, hurt hurricanes, and uh, and and like I say, you're right. I mean, you can just walk around the French Quarter with with alcohol, and I just think to me, it's one of the most fun cities out there. I mean, it's it's one of those. 
You know, it's like a live and let live type of attitude type of uh, situation. Yeah. Now, let the good times roll. Yeah. Now, what's your favorite football team? Who do you follow? I've the Saints. I've been a, a definitely a hardcore, like diehard Saints fan, whether they're winning or losing. So, yeah, I'm all in. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I like, like I say, uh, you know, I'm with you. you know, uh, you know, I, you know, I guess. Well, yeah. You know, I say I, I grew up as a Washington, formerly known as the Redskins. I mean, I lived in the Washington, D.C. area. I, mean, I can remember when Sonny Jerkerson was the quarterback. And even before him, there was a guy named Norman Sneed. I don't know if you ever re- remember Norm or not. Uh, that is awesome. Yeah. And so that's who I grew up with. Is that, I mean, we, and so I've always been, you know, a you know, fan of Washington. And, and of course, the, the George Allen era and the, Joe Gibbs era that unfortunately we've suffered two decades of the Snyder era. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel your pain. It's like, you know, if you're yeah. a fan, you're a fan. You like the, the ups and downs. You got to just, you yeah. got to stick in with them. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and like you say, who knows? Maybe I'm hoping Ron Rivera can turn this thing around and I hope his health holds up as well. Uh, and I hope it's, you know, because uh, I hope it's our repeat of 1969-70. You know, that, that was the year that Vince Lombardi took over the Redskins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, and he had got, you know, he basically set the foundation uh, going into the 70s. He, they, you know, they was like he had their first winning season over a decade. Things were looking bright. And then he got cancer and passed away pretty uh. quickly. And, yeah, and, cancer, and Ron Rivera is now, you know, Rivera is now going through cancer chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I hope he gets through because he's a good coach. Yeah, I think he'll turn this team around. Uh, hopefully, cool, cool. But, yeah, yeah. No, I, I like to it. see I mean, good I, games. I, was, you know, I did too. And no, I tell you, we've had some pretty good games so far, and. Uh, it was going to be an interesting season because I'm one of those guys who I'm not convinced that Tom Brady is going to take Tampa Bay to a super, to a Super Bowl. I mean, if they if they make the you know I think they'll make the playoffs, but I don't see them going that far beyond that. And I don't know about you, I don't see Brady as the Brady of old. There are times in which he looks like an old Brady. Yeah, no, that's funny. Yeah, I I think that. Um... I don't know. I mean, I think that he's just getting to know the offense. He definitely it was not looking like himself in the beginning of the year, but I, I think he's he's getting yeah. better though. Yeah. All right. I'll tell you what. This is this is uh, Tom Donaldson, uh, uh, and I want to thank Kyle Hess, our guest, uh, and 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 Kyle. You can find him on Twitter at what the, what's your Twitter handle, on Kyle? Um, at Kyle at Kyle D Hester. At Kyle D Hester, right? Well, thank you very much, Kyle, for being on the show. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back uh, uh, next Tuesday on this network. And don't forget, 3 a.m., 10 a.m. on the bachelornews.airtime.pro. Good night.
Trumpet. You know it's the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I'm Dr. Larry Fidewa, your co-host for the evening. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about how a Biden presidency will change your life. Everybody keeps saying that this is the most important election of our lifetime, if not in American history. Is this true? Why do we keep hearing this? The answer to the question is, yes, it is truly the most important election, at least in our lifetime, perhaps in our history, with the exception of the election of 1860, which ignited the Civil War. The reason for this judgment, however, differs for each side of the debate. Biden's supporters assert that President Trump is a failed president whose continuation in office will threaten the future of America. They follow with a series of accusations which are expressed in the context of what an evil person he is, citing mostly statements or tweets he has made, whether actually or allegedly. Unfortunately, however, it is rather more difficult to determine the actual positions of the Democrat ticket due to the discrepancy on certain issues between candidate Biden's shifting support on key questions, such as fracking and fossil fuel policies, COVID-19, economic shutdown, packing the Supreme Court, Chinese military aggression, and other issues as well as the different views put forth by surrogates and the DNC. All of this casts a shadow over Mr. Biden's claim that he is the Democrat Party today. However, there seems to be enough evidence to assert that the following outline is reasonably representative of their platform. The underlying issue, however, concerns the Constitution of the United States of America. The theory of constitutional law, which characterizes the liberal movement, holds that the language of the Constitution itself was developed in the 18th century and should not be taken literally. Rather, the Constitution represents the intentions of the founders and should be adapted to modern problems and issues by following the, quote, spirit rather than the letter as written. This approach allows American judiciary at all levels to rule according to current political trends. Thus, the actual wording of the Constitution is ignored, and issues are resolved on whatever basis a particular court finds appropriate. The following positions advocated by Democrats in this election are to be understood in this this context. First of all, the Supreme Court. To effect these changes in law would require Supreme Court approval because they would override the Constitution and become the law of the land. In order for that to happen, the court would have to be controlled by liberal justices, which is not at pre- which it is not at present. Therefore, the Dems would have pass a law expanding the number of seats on the court and then appoint well-known liberals to fill those seats. And this is called packing the court. Then there's the Electoral College. If elected, the Dems would seek to eliminate the Electoral College 
in favor of a majority of the popular vote. In effect, New York and California, as the most populous states, would control the federal government. Middle America would cease to exist as a political force in the nation. They would also seek to add Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia to the 50 states. Since these are known Democrat strongholds, they would guarantee that the Congress, uh, uh, the control of the Congress of the United States uh, would be for the Democrats for the foreseeable future. On the issue of guns, the Second Amendment to the Constitution provides for the right of Americans to bear arms, that is, to own weapons. This right would be overturned by Democrat-controlled government. Another restriction imposed by the Constitution is the prohibition of government interference with religion, what we know as freedom of religion. The Dems are of a mind to permit the federal government to discriminate against the citizens on the basis of religious beliefs. Two recent examples are the provision in the Affordable Care Act requiring all employers to regard to provide birth control amenities to the employees without regard to the religious beliefs of the employer. Another case in point is the accusation that judges who belong to the Catholic Church are not fit for office because of the official Catholic teaching that abortion is a sin. But beyond constitutional issues are other plats, uh, planks in the government in the Dems platform. On the economy, the most significant economic impact of the Democrat agenda is the additional taxes they would assess on the American people. Biden has declared that on his first day in office, he will rescind the Trump tax, immediately increasing middle-class taxes by several hundred dollars a year, to be followed by a major increase on companies and individuals with incomes and assets totaling $300,000 or more. Presumably, this includes retirement funds and other investments which have uh, positive yields. The biggest issue in foreign policy is the rapidly mounting evidence that Mr. Biden is guilty of major corruption through billions of dollars advanced from foreign sources, especially China and Russia, to his son, Hunter Biden, and other relatives. This makes him the Manchurian candidate, that is, an American president controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. And domestic policy, uh, there are the chief concerns are, first of all, abortion. The establishment of unlimited abortions at public expense, including the killing of ninth-month fetuses for any reason. And then there's law enforcement. They support the funding, defunding of police departments in favor of social workers. And energy, the commitment to the elimination of fossil fuels by some deadline, which varies from 2030 to 2050, with the accompanying loss of millions of jobs, loss of competition with China, all without any satisfactory substitute technology and based on dubious science. They also would have federal support for the Black Lives Matter 
Antifa and other Marxist organizations, which were responsible for much of the violence, property destruction, and murder in 2020. And immigration, the reopening of the U.S. border to unregulated immigration and government support for these immigrants through welfare, free medical care, and education. Trade reversion to the former trade policies in which the U.S. firms paid high tariffs to export goods and services and and then charged no tariffs on import from foreign manufacturers. And finally, health care. They would have the reinstitution of Obamacare with socialized medicine on the horizon, which is complete government control of health care, probably through the expansion of Medicare. So in summary, the, the Biden years would thus lead to complete government control of our lives, permanent economic stagnation, permanent low employment, continual expansion of welfare-dependent population, decline of the American quality of life and world standing, and ultimately a world dominated by the Chinese Communist Party. That is why 2020 is the most important election in American history. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe Radio Broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dr. Larry Show, which is also the home of the Bachelor News Radio Show with your host, L.A. Bachelor. His show discusses issues of race, politics, policing, injustice, inequality, religion, and sports that affect black, brown, and poor people negatively. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 to 8 uh, Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com slash Bachelor, and the rebroadcast every day at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Time at, at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. If you're interested in having your own show or advertising, Email us with at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and uh, stay informed. And tonight I'd like to uh, uh, welcome my, uh, as a co-host, my uh, colleague uh, Tom Donaldson, and uh, who's well known to us uh, even from the prior uh, the prior uh, program tonight. And uh, welcome, Tom. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, we're always glad to be back on the Dr. Larry Show. It's kind of like my second home here on the Bachelor News Radio. <laughs> Especially since I was on your show last night, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, um, so uh, Tom, what's your comment on uh, living with the uh, Biden presidency? 
uh, you know, where do you start? I mean, you, you kind of laid well, out so much. So, but let's uh, but let's kind of start it this way. You know, it's you know, I, I kind of view it, it because I wrote a whole book on the subject. You know, the rise of national populism and democratic socialism. Which, by the way, I kind of predicted, or I noticed then it too. You know, that hey, this is the Democratic Party today. It is the Dem- it is the Socialist Party of America, and I think that that, you know, and I think that it's the first thing to really understand is that particular facet is that this is a party that has gone beyond what one would call traditional liberalism or at least even Franklin Roosevelt liberalism or even LBJ liberalism and certainly John F. Kennedy liberalism to outright socialism. Uh, Think of it this way. If not Bernie Sanders may have – yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Bernie Sanders may have lost two shots at the presidency, but he's won the war within the Democratic Party. Uh, and the question, and whereas I say, you know, who truly runs the Congress? And the answer to your question would be the hard left runs the Congress for the Democratic Party. Uh, even in California, if you look at California, the real debate in California is whether or not you have the quote-unquote moderate radicals versus the let's burn it all down radicals. But the, you know, people like Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff, they're not much different than Alexander Cortez. You know, it, and that's a good place to start to look at California. You know, is this where you want to be? It's California where you basically have every aspect of the progressive policies in place, and we've now seen the results. Uh, you have oligarchies pretty much running the state. You have a progressive government that pretty much takes a high percentage of their life. You have an energy policy that with third world infrastructure where it runs at, where you literally have energy out of cycle. I mean, they run out, you get to run out of energy because they don't have an infrastructure that supports it because they're into the renewable, the more and more renewable sense. You have essentially the big, you know, why not have every three people in welfare lives in California. You have the highest percentage. It has the highest percentage based on the, the Census Bureau supplemental data of people, poor people listed below poverty. And it's a state where if you make a hundred thousand dollars, you still have problems meeting your bills at the end of the month. There's no place to live for one thing. Well, you have a place to live if you like living in a uh, two bedroom or 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 a tent. (laughs) Yeah, I guess yeah. Tent on the high on the street. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's your you know start and and it's an interesting thing because we the Supreme Court's a good start. Because why don't why are they doing everything they can to keep Barrett from being on the Supreme Court? Because they want to control you know, every aspect of government. And when you control the Supreme Court and you support the court, you know basically what we all the living, whatever you deem to be constitutional will be constitution. The actual constitution be damned. So, I I was. 
interested in my piece about trying to, uh, as my dad used to say, bring the hay down where the horses can eat it. Speaking of which, I had two sick horses today, <laughs> so, uh, which is the reason I could you couldn't get a hold of me. Uh, but anyway, um, it's it, it, the average person, you know, doesn't really pay that much attention to uh, politics on a on a daily basis. Although I think that's kind of changing now recently uh, with all the excitement about the about this election, but. But really, you know, the, uh, I look back at, at the Jimmy Carter administration as kind of the norm that uh, that the uh, way people live is is going to uh, be a permanent. It's a permanent kind of stag. What do they call it? Stagflation, where you've got inflation running at twenty percent, and you've got uh, GDP at, at either one percent or negative even, and and you got high unemployment, you've got uh, you've really got a permanent re- depression, frankly. And if they keep on raising, if they raise taxes the way they're talking about, there's really going to be no way for people to uh, really survive in a uh, in in what we think of as a, as the as a middle class norm of uh not luxury so much as, as just uh you know af- a, a certain amount of affluent li- living and that that is one of the major factors that uh that we see in California for example i mean people can't afford they can't afford to live near where the jobs are and they end up uh, on the street, and you've got uh, then you've got this whole uh, idea of uh, climate change and why they've got the the greatest uh, uh, they, they've got mil- virtually millions of acres of uh, of uh, forest fires, which come from bad from uh, not uh, using the taxpayer's money to clean up the the floor of the forest so that they don't burn so much. Uh, it's just, it's just, a, a, an incredible, it's an incredible, uh, cycle where the government keeps taking more and more money to spend on more and more poor people who can't get jobs because the economy is, is going to hell. And, uh, and, and then on top of that, you've got all this, this, uh, problem of, Taking, uh, you know, of the liberal, the ultra-liberal or Marxist approach to uh, religion and to uh, all the the other characteristics of uh, uh, of of this kind of revolution that we're seeing in the in the in the in the cities this summer. It's just it's just a nightmare. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, here's an interesting. You, you make a good point. Let's let's start like, yeah. You know, let's kind of go to the economic side of the equation because, uh, you know, you know, when I wrote my book, the one thing I was looking at, what really struck me, was, you know, the modern day left. They don't talk about growing the economy. They talk about the economy as as if it's a pie that's here that's not going to grow. And it's a case of redistributing the wealth 
That's right. But they're not they're, they when you look at their plans, you look at what they're talking about, and here's what you don't see. You don't see how are you going to grow the economy? How do you grow the entrepreneur? You know, how do you, you know, increase the you know, wealth among people? I mean, these are things that they don't even talk about anymore. It's not about growing the economy. It's simply about, uh, you know, just, well, they think, you, know, they you have a pie that's, yeah, it's a static, yeah, it's a very static model at best. Yep. But they work on the assumption nothing is going to grow. Uh, and I think that, that, you know, right off the bat, and that's a, an interesting aspect that comes to me is, you know, how do you plan to grow the economy? Well, it starts with motivation. You've got uh, the, the economy is going to grow if people really make it grow, and they only do that if they're motivated to work hard yeah. and 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 uh, be careful of how they spend and so on. And frankly, capitalism, at least uh, in in theory, is, is the only is the only way of. Uh, uh, governing that has ever produced that kind of uh, dynamism and that kind of uh, originality and 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 most people try to to work hard and 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 grow their economy. Why? Because they're they're taking care of their own family. That's 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 why they that's why they work so hard. And if they don't think that whatever they're working hard is going to do that. Then they you become like communist Russia. Well, I mean that's a that's a good point. I mean, here's the, I mean to me, like I say, it comes down to you know, We don't. I mean, they don't talk about economic growth. It's almost like it's not there. It's and uh, and I think that's an important aspect because certainly, you know, if you go back to the Carter era. I mean, there was, you know. Even in the Carter era, at least people talked about you know, growing the economy. Here's our idea of how to do that, and you know this is not even a topic of discussion. And I think it's a dangerous aspect because, as you stated, if people don't feel, you know, let's put it this way: if if you don't, if you're not going to be able to earn, you know, work hard. Let me I, I, let me start over again. Okay. Here's the thing. One of the things we did, we've looked at over the years, where we have found, where we would ask people the question, you know, you know, hard work, you know, the basic, what we call the basic principles, uh, the proven principles of success. Hard work. Don't show up drunk at work. Uh, wait till you ha- get married to have children. I mean, these are things that, let's say, 20 years ago, you know, we wouldn't have that discussion because everybody'd be in general agreement. But you have an entire group of people who are basically undermining that aspect. It's like hard work doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, don't worry about having kids when you're not married. Uh, go ahead, show up drunk and stoned. Who cares? You know, we'll put you in a drug plan, a drug program. Uh, but what they, you know, but you know, these are things under assault. Uh, yeah, I know we got a break coming up real quickly here, but. Uh, I would throw it in this way. Years ago, there was a, a professor, Amy Wax, of Penn, Pennsylvania. She wrote an article on bourgeoisie virtues, you know, the importance of these things we talked about. And she literally was called 
every name under the book, including being a racist, for bringing up the fact that there are basic sound, this is what you need to do to move up the economic ladder. I mean, she was roundly condemned for that. And that tells you everything you need to know. Uh, what was the so, date? God, it was, I have to look that up, 2013, 14. It was oh, an article yeah. she wrote in the yeah. Washington Post. So uh, I'll tell you what, you, we have a, I think you've got a break coming up here, right? Yeah. Uh, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Join Barry Barnes for Locker Talk on the Bachelor Pad Network as he presents NFL news and evaluates players Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. Get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. Is I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to the Dr. Larry Show, which is also the home of the Donaldson Files with Tom Donaldson and Coco Konsky. Tom and Coco discuss politics from the right and left while giving you entertainment news and guests. Listen live every Tuesday and Wednesday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com slash labachelor slash la hyphen bachelor. And every day at 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Eastern Time, and uh, at uh, thebachelornews.airtime.pro. And if you're interested in having your own show or advertising, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen especially to Tom Donaldson and Coco Konsky, and stay informed. And how's that for a plug? <laughs> That'd be great. Yes, absolutely. By the way, we got yeah. <laughs> what can I say? It's by, by the way, uh, uh, we did get a, the we got a little note here that somebody says, "Would you discuss Amy Coney Barrett?" So I'll, I'll let you get that started. Well, what we have here, <clears throat> we have a, a, an eminently qualified uh, woman uh, who is uh, being considered for a uh, vacant uh, 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 seat on the on the Supreme Court, vacated by one of the uh, towering uh, women talents of, uh, of certainly modern time, I guess all time, and uh, she is uh, on on the other side of this uh, discussion about or this this conflict of interpretations of the uh, of the of the constitution her her position is that the constitution is uh, the result of an uh, proper properly elected uh, uh, action on the part of uh, in in the, in the initial uh, uh, States and the Congress, 
and that also goes for any other law that was that that got it, it gets standing as a law to be considered by the uh, judiciary because it was elected it was um, uh, initiated by and authorized by people that were elected by the by the uh, American electorate to uh, to do the legislating for America and that does not apply to judges judges were not elected by the uh, by the electoral process and they therefore are simply in the position of trying of having to determine what the uh, people meant by the uh, language of the Constitution and of any uh, uh, authorized law, properly uh, legislated law. And therefore, um, that is the basis for uh, all of the decisions. So all of these discussions about, you know, abortion and, and uh and uh, health care and all of these things that the Democrats are bringing up are really irrelevant because that that those are the that those answering those problems are the problem that's what what the legislature is for and they're supposed to be doing making laws to try to solve those problems and if they if they don't do that then uh, the only thing that is is available is the laws that were already uh, uh, passed, and therefore that has that is the basis for the uh, for the uh, judgment that has to be made by uh, by the court. So this this whole thing is is uh, is a prime example of what I was talking about earlier, in that the uh, liberal interpretation of the of the uh, Constitution and of all the laws is that. Uh, they they need to be bent, if necessary, to uh, meet current problems, and that puts the, ju- the the judiciary in the position of legislating, and uh, and uh, Amy Barrett and uh, the rest of the uh, uh, conservatives, so-called conservatives, on the uh, on the, in the judiciary, both on the Supreme Court and and uh, appeals courts and federal courts. Uh, basically, uh, they take the position that that's not their job. Their job is to uh, enforce the law as written and as uh, according to the meaning of the people who pass the law, and it's not to change the uh, law and in trying to solve the problems that should have been solved by the legislature. So that's what this is all about. And that is why the liberals are fighting so hard because they know that they are they have been incapable of uh, making the kind of solutions to the critical problems in the United States uh, that uh, that the legislature is supposed to have been solving, and therefore they want to solve it by having the judges. All you have, to, like uh, somebody said, you, it's easier to get five. Five votes from uh, from ten, from nine people than it is to get 50 million votes from uh, the American electorate. So, so that's what this is all about. Yeah, I agree. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, you know, you you kind of laid this out with the issues, and so let's kind of go over some of these things real quick that you talk about. Okay, for example, 
gun rights. I mean, we don't. I mean, one of the most disappointing things I've seen, you know, when we've talked about Baird, is is we aren't talking about the consequences if she doesn't get on the Supreme Court. Uh, the Second Amendment it essentially be gone. Uh, say what you want to say. I mean, you would have. I mean, the the various the Heller and McDonald, the two decisions that basically reinforced an individual right to own a gun is the is the basically one vote away from being changed, totally changed. I mean, wiped out. Uh, and I think that that you know, and so we're, this is what we're talking about. I mean, and if people want to understand, it's okay. It was Dearborn, Illinois. You know, they had. You know, they decided to have a very strict gun control. They basically, literally, stated, "If you own a gun, we're going to fine you. You know, you have to bring your gun in. You know, if that, you know, you have to bring your guns in. If there are certain guns with certain magazines, da da da, you have to bring it in. If you don't bring it in, we're coming to get them, and we're going to fine you a thousand dollars. And these are the things that." We're going to be facing in the future. You, you talk about religion, uh, but just look at the most. I mean, look at around in these lockdowns, in these economic restrictions, churches being restricted to a point where they can't even meet. I mean, how many? And we, we literally have had episodes where churches were fine for even, let's say, having fifty percent filled or twenty-five percent filled. In certain states, many of these states, you know, I mean, if there was a, a freedom that's sitting there, well, for, freedom for, of for, even for for having services, having services, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is these are the things, and these are the things that you know, you know, bear, you know, they want to be rid of because they want to make sure we will dictate uh, this new living constitution in which. The law is whatever we deem it to be. And I, you know, we aren't going to put the limitation on the power of government. A nice way, you know, for me, I look at the Constitution this way. The Constitution basically stated here's what the government can do, and here's what it can't do. And if we don't mention it, the people will have some decision on how to do it, provided it's within the range of the Constitution. Yeah, yeah basically it's it's set up as a limitation of government uh, because yeah. of they they were they were against they they were uh they had lived under the monarchy and absolute uh, uh rule of uh, of the british king and and it was enforced by the army and they didn't want any more of that yeah the founders and of so it. i mean these yeah i mean these are the things i mean and this is i'm, I'm and like i say i'm disappointed in the sense that these are the things we need to talk about not just with Barrett, but go beyond that uh you know whether it's packing the court cuz they're talking about packing the court and they're definitely you know the packing the court is not a a republican appointing a conservative to the supreme court that's in the constitution but packing the court is when you essentially are saying, you know, you know we're going to put as many judges as we can just to make sure we win. You know, we're yeah. packing the court to add more liberals. Uh, and, again, we need to be talking about that because essentially this is what's going to end up happening. Well, the only the only 
defense that we have is uh, that we have to reelect uh, Trump. You know, whether you're for him or against him, you you, you always have to say, compared to what? And even uh, we haven't even talked about this Manchurian candidate that we're we're promoting for American president. You know, with uh, all of the the issues that are coming coming out about his son uh, uh, taking in billions of dollars, really. Uh, from China and Russia and other sources uh, because of his uh, access to the vice president who is in charge of a lot of that. Uh, I mean, th- th- this is this means that if uh, clearly if the, if the Biden administration uh, it, it comes into being, they're going to crush all, squash all of those uh, uh Inquire investigations that are finally getting started, and uh, and then of course the uh, Chinese Democrat, the Chinese Communist Party has got all the cards. They can expose him at any time, and he's under their control. Well, yeah. well let me put it this way: they don't need to expose him. There's the data's already there. It's a case of if we had a media that was worthy. Of itself, we yeah, wouldn't we be don't. talking about this. It would, it would have been, he wouldn't have been nominated under those circumstances. It's under those circumstances. It's, but you're absolutely correct on that regard. But, but you know, here's the other aspect about foreign policy. I mean, this is again something we haven't even talked about in this debate. We, I mean, we haven't even talked the the foreign policy side throughout this entire campaign and. Yeah, you know, we had this conversation earlier today. I said, "Look, you want to see the policy? I mean, let me put it this way. This is what I, I said, you know, you know, last hour. I said, look, this was in 2009. This is the world that Obama, Biden inherited. Iran was in a box, economically distressed. You know, we pretty much, you know, in the case of Iraq, the the surge was working. Uh, Yemen was stable." Libya has surrendered in the war, uh, in the war of terror. Uh, Syria was quiet. Uh, the Ukraine actually owned all of their countries without proxies. The world that Donald Trump inherited is half of the Ukraine was was pretty much run over by the proxies of Vladimir Putin. He had taken over the Crimea. Yemen is now a civil war between Iran and Saudi on their border. Libya is a terrorist playground, totally unstable. And you've had a civil war in Syria that's literally killed a half a million people plus. Uh, I mean, one country has killed almost you know, half as many people as we're worried about COVID killing throughout the world. Uh, well, then you've got NATO. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have NATO where we actually are expecting these countries to pay their way, and they're starting to do that. Uh, we've challenged China, and we've also strengthened alliances. We've strengthened the alliance in the Middle East with the Sunnis and the Israelis as a pretty much an anti-Iranian conflict. We have, you're seeing India, Japan, North, South Korea, Australia. Forming uh, their own 
uh, alliance. And I say let's kind of follow up on this because yeah, we, uh, I we, hate we to have your time because that's go ahead. We have to we have to pick this up in a minute. Uh, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And uh, let me take a moment here to say that if you want to uh, listen uh, or participate in uh, in any of our shows uh, on this network, you can call uh, 646-929-0130, and uh, you'll be... Uh, You'll be, you can become part of the program either as a listener or even as a participant. And uh, and my uh, my work, by the way, can be found uh, on on the uh, web uh, as my website, which is www.drlarryonline.com, and also on this on this station on this. Not, not on our our podcast uh, website uh, at uh, that we've been promoting here uh, recently uh, at uh, L A Bachelor that uh, excuse me at um, uh, the News dot airtime dot pro and uh, we're on at uh, well Tom Tom's program is on at um, 3 a.m. and 10 10 a.m. Eastern Time every day, and mine is at 4 a.m. and no 1 a.m. and uh, and 11 a.m. every day. So we are as available as we can be, uh, and uh, in the internet age. <laughs> so uh, so anyway, let's get on with our discussion here. Uh, we're talking to Tom Donaldson. Who is uh, my colleague in the uh, uh, on this uh, show? And uh, uh, we can uh, we were talking about what it would be like to live under a uh, Biden presidency, and it looks pretty bleak, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's. Uh, I do want to kind of follow up on what I was saying on the foreign policy side, because basically, what you're seeing. Is a what I call more of an American nationalist first policy in the sense that our national interest takes precedence, not one of isolation. But as I stated, American. you got these alliances that are being formed, and they're all going to be threatened by a Biden administration, uh, especially in the Middle East and the Pacific, uh, and certainly in Europe. You know, they they'll cow down to wherever France and Germany wants, as opposed to what the polls. <laughs> Those in Central Europe want, so it's going to be interesting. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the thing is this: is, uh, the former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates observed about uh, Joe Biden. You know, he couldn't think of too many of a, a major issue in foreign policy that Joe Biden actually got right. 
said he's never been on the right side in his entire career. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. I, I'm more than interested. I'm I'm terrified. <laughs> I the yeah. more I the more I get into this thing, the more uh, concerned I get. I, I'm afraid that if if we don't if we don't uh, stop this whole thing with uh, by uh, electing the Republican, uh, we may never get another chance because yeah. these people well, will yeah. take over and they'll get they'll get uh, uh, the District of Columbia and uh, Puerto Rico to uh, uh, as states, and that'll be four more senators and and a lot more congressmen, and uh, it'll be all over. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, here's the the, the the other aspect comes into play is this. I don't know if, you, if people really understood the story dealing with, let's say, the attempt to kidnap Governor Whitmore in Michigan. And I found it, you know, and the thing is, of course, it was treated as a white supremacist group, but this white supremacist group turns out to be a a group of people who hate Trump. B, they're anarchists. See, they love Black Lives Matter. And I, and I kind of thought to myself, well, wait a minute. Yeah. And then it kind of dawned on me that basically what you're seeing is the, uh, the French Revolution being reenacted, namely the more extremists are going after the less extremists on the political left. You know, this is just part of that game, you know, part of that uh, – uh, you know, thing that you're seeing, or the radicalization of the Democratic Party of taking it to the lowest common denominator, but the message is clear. It's going to become clear in a Biden administration, namely, we run the streets, we're going to run the party, and you're going to do what we tell you. It's anarchy well, it, to promote you know, promote Marxism. Yeah, and and I I think that the the um if they if they got their way and they they actually uh uh you know they're really more of a they're terrorist organization they have kind of a uh as far as i can tell there's kind of a crazy uh rationale or or belief system i i, I it's not even clear what they're for it's just what they're against and they're they're against the, whatever the status quo is. And that's everything. That's not only, uh, as you say, it's not only the uh, the right, but they're also uh, they're against the left. So I mean, th- this whole thing is is very. And then to blame the president for it, uh, it it, it begs it beggars the imagination, frankly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, because it kind of dictates because you know. You know, here's the thing. When people say, you know, one of the things, you know, that I noticed in my book and I noticed it in my writing, I stated is that when people understand. How can we get a hold a of that of these, book? Okay. Why, why don't you we can just... get a hold of my book. Yeah. The Rise of National Populism and Democratic Socialism. Uh, you, you go to posthillpress.com, posthillpress.com, and you can also go to amazon.com. So you can buy that book in either one of those two places, Amazon.com and PostHillPress.com. Well, then get on with your other point. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Well, actually, here's the thing. You know, one of the things I observed then, and I'm going to observe now, is okay. For example, how many people wear the fact that the neo-Nazi Richard Spencer is endorsed Joe Biden this election? And the reason is simple. I mean, you know, yeah, it sounds like you know. And here's think of it this way: these neo-Nazis and many of these people on the so-called alt-right, whatever you want to call them, they basically follow a leftist economic model. I remember I had to debate them, these people, and be like, you know, do you guys believe in fascism? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we love fascism. I mean, they actually would tell me these things. You know, when I would tweet or, you know, you know, interview them, they would say, yeah, we love, you know, and I, you know, I quote these people. And when you ask these people, who's your model of governance? Oh, China is our model of governance. When you ask them about the, the environment, you know, they're basically repeating what, you know, what the political left said. So, you know, you name a, an environmental issue, they're on the same side as Alexander Cortez or Elizabeth Warren. Uh, then socialized medicine, they love it. Uh, well, there's, there's a term for that. Say, it's yeah, called, it's uh, called uh, totalitarianism. totalitarianism. Yeah. And the thing is, the only difference between a Richard Spencer and the and, and, this, and these people who try to kidnap uh, Whitmore is this. R- Spencer's a racist who happens to be a Marxist. They're anarchists who have they're anarchists who happen to be Marxist. But beyond that, when they look in the mirror, when anti and the anti fascist movement, the anti fall movement looks in the mirror, they're looking at the neo Nazis. Uh, well, that that uh, is kind of a uh, uh, there, there's bound to be more of that if we get into a yeah. more dictatorial type of uh, federal government, well, federal government particularly, uh, which it seems to be that we're coming. If we get if you get hard times, you get more you get more crime, you get more. Uh, uh, mental illness. You get you get more uh, breaking up of families, more violence. Uh, I mean, bad, hard times can. We're not used to that in America. We're not used to hard times and and like they are in some other societies where they just they they never had hope, so they didn't they didn't lose hope. We've had hope. We've had the the, the so-called American way. The, the American dream, and and then when we can't when we can't get that, when it becomes looks like it's out of reach, then then we get very frustrated and we we do things you know and and these people that that do it without any particular uh, ideology or as we call them anarchists and terrorists, uh, they they are the extreme expression. Of a lot of people who are who are really suffering, you know, and they, they're suffering mainly because of this shutdown that we had, and it went on too long in some places, and 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 not only that, but these people are they've been the victims of the last generation of uh, of all of the uh, what was it seventy thousand factories uh, were. Uh, went uh, to uh, other countries and closed down in the United States. The whole uh, union movement and the middle class, the uh, manufacturing base of America, 
moved overseas and left all the you know, workers stranded and and these are the these are the kids of the of the people that went through that they saw all of the suffering of their of their parents and 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 all of the the violence and the poverty and uh, drunkenness and uh, so on and and they 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 and then they went to college a lot of them and and they stay all the, what they heard was a a, a marxist uh view of of a utopia where everybody's equal and everybody's happy and nobody wants to fight with anybody and then they look around and they see well this is not what we were used to we saw that people were being taken advantage of and they were suffering and nobody was happy and so then they said that so they they then start getting into these crazy things like this uh AOC and and this uh, uh, climate uh, uh, climate control movement and all this crazy stuff that it's all basically uh, it's a it's an expression of the frustration of living in such a society. And if you happen to be a black or a, 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 a brown uh, skinned person, then you 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 can blame it on racism. And you can say, well, it's all the white people, but you got to be against somebody. You got to be against. You got to be against yeah. the people that made you suffer, and made your parents suffer. And I think I think we we have to we have to take it into account that there that this, this is a, a number of people that uh, have lost hope, and and the only hope they have yeah. is uh, is getting radical change. And this is this is what we have to we have to provide prosperity and in equal and reform as we go along. And if we don't, uh, this whole thing is is, is just going to go underground yeah. and simmer. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree. I mean, here's the thing. The other thing too is, you know, you you bring up the you know the Green New Deal. You know, yep. Yep. I always I kind of view I mean, if you want to see. Yeah, if you want to see a dress rehearsal, if you want to see what the Green New Deal looks like, we basically have seen that dress rehearsal right now uh, with the Green New Deal, with the shutdown. Uh, and, uh, and, and that, to me, is the key element that comes into play here, is that, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, here's the way, there are three things that bothers me about this. You know, we, we talked about this. The politicalization of science is number one. That sci- I mean, if you look at, again, you know, you look at the science that undergirded the lockdown to begin with, was basically wrong, if not non-existent. It was basically wrong. But in the process, you know, you know tens of thousands of people probably die prematurely as a result. You know, hundreds of thousands would die prematurely as a result of this. We will see businesses never come back. Community is pretty much devastated, and and if you take the Green New Deal, you're going to see that result by a fact. Just add a factor of ten, and you'll get the Green New Deal. If you don't like what happened now, wait till the Green New Deal comes because it'll be a factor of ten, and it'll have every you know every aspect of your life will be under some form of government control. 
And and the other thing, it just won't work. I mean, there is yeah. no there's no substitute technology for the for the fossil fuel that that will that will uh, power uh, all of the American society and and all of the. I mean, we're a very very uh, electrified and uh, power yeah. energy uh, uh, rich uh, type of life lifestyle for a. I mean, it it just it just won't work, and 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 then you got all these, and then you're going to have other people now that well, all the all the people that lost all those jobs, they're they're all going to get. It could be you know like like the March on Washington in 1931, in 1930. Mm. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, well, we've yeah. just I mean, got it, a lot of well, stuff he, going on. Well, I mean, like I said, you want to see the future? Just look at California. And one of the yeah. aspects, they couldn't even keep the energy running. I mean, you literally had, like, I think the mayor of L.A. telling people, you know, take your furnace staff off, uh, you know, turn it right. off, uh, don't take showers, whatever. And yeah. uh, and I'm thinking, I mean, this is California we're talking here. We're talking where the, literally the electricity went out. I mean, it's like yeah. a third world infrastructure. And you're going to ask yourself, I mean, this is California. We're not talking Venezuela or some third world country. We're talking California. This is the future, and it's not pretty. It's a very, you know, it's not a pretty future. So. Well, it can be if we can get enough people to vote for uh, the Republicans and get some sanity yeah. back into this process. And I surely hope we yeah. can do that. We're coming up to the last two minutes here, and uh, so Tom, what's your what's your final uh, your final thought on all of this? Do you have a, a pissy saying where you can <laughs> summarize all of the uh, all of the anguish that we've been expressing here? Well, I'm gonna put this. Uh, you know, somebody once said after the first three or four, two or three months of the shutdown, I said, well, welcome to your 60 days of Marxism. Hope you, how did you like it? And I would say to you, you know, most people, so I guess if there's a little pithy thing, I would simply say, you know, if you want America to actually stay America, you can't vote for Joe Biden. I guess my summary would be vote Republican uh, up and down the entire ticket, because uh, it's uh, it's our last chance. So, th- Tom, I want to thank you, Tom, for uh, stepping in and uh, and uh, contributing so much to the uh, show tonight. And uh, we certainly wish uh, you and and all the rest of the Americans uh, not only good luck but good sense. And uh, let's let's hope that everything turns out. Uh, for the better, and maybe the Lord is still, still uh, over looking over uh, our shoulder, and and He's going to save us from this uh, terrible uh, uh, future that we might we might have if uh, if we don't do the right thing. So, this is Dr. Larry Fidoa saying good night, and God bless America, and vote Republican. 